Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. I can't point you to a particular passage today. I'm going to skip around a few uh, different places in the Bible. Today's message is about how we live by priority, particularly priority on God. And to open up, I just wanted to do a little bit of a demonstration. I haven't primed anyone for this, so I am looking for a volunteer. I stress the word volunteer now. It won't be a volunteer in a moment. I'll just pick somebody. <laughs> You're not going to have to do anything crazy. That might... Okay, success. Okay, success. You were getting ready there, weren't you, Joseph? Yeah, okay. Right, sister, if you could just bring yourself a chair over. I'm going to get a chair over too. Wherever you feel most comfortable. I'm going to have to kind of actually move... move Yes, I'll just, yeah, that's fine. Just go there. Okay. Right. What subject is really important to you? The authority of the believer. The authority of the believer. Okay. Do you think you could talk to me for a moment about, you don't need to be mic'd up for this. Okay. But uh, just start talking to me about the authority of the believer. Okay. Um, the New Testament believer, the born again believer, the believer who has the Lord God, carries a lot of authority. don't know the authority they carry. That's why they seem to be weighed down in life. Um, the Bible says that um, God is the king of kings. So we are actually kings. Uh, <laughs> we are actually kings. So um, he's a king and we're king. Uh, he's a priest and we're priests. So we're supposed to rule and reign in this life. That was really lovely. What did she say? I wasn't listening. Okay, thank you. You can go and sit down now. I'll explain why I was so rude to you in a moment. <laughs> My rudeness was deliberate. One thing I've learned in my 45 years on this planet is that when people are talking about something that's important to them, you need to give their words and what they're saying a sense of priority. If you don't do that, your conversations with people will probably end with somebody, I don't know, maybe just pulling your face towards them and say, are you listening to what I'm saying? Are you paying attention? My kids do this to me quite often. If I'm working from home and I have my laptop out and they're telling me something, I'm just typing, I'm just saying yes to whatever they're saying. And then Nikki will say something to me along the lines of why have you given permission for the kids to have their fifth ice cream today? I don't know what I've given them permission for. I've just said yes. Why? Because I'm not paying attention. I'm trying to balance my work with what they're saying and it comes at the cost of what they're saying. We instinctively know, it's intuitive, that if we want to give somebody the respect that they deserve, that sense of priority that they need to feel, then our body language, our way of tuning into their words, has to demonstrate that they have our attention 
and while they're speaking, they are our priority. However, in our walk with God, in our life and journey with God, quite often I would imagine there are times when, in our understanding of God, we would say he's our priority, but our body language, the time and attention that we're prepared to give to him, doesn't reflect what we say we would kind of give in terms of our attention to God. And the commandments, the Ten Commandments that we're looking at to, today, or as part of this series certainly, is the story of Israel coming into a relationship with God, not simply given instruction for how to behave, but to set boundaries and expectations about how the relationship between God and his people should take place. It's almost like on the Mount Sinai experience when Moses is going up representing God's people before God. It's like the moment of a marriage ceremony where people make their vows to one another. This is how I choose to behave and this is the priority that I'm going to give you. And the first thing that God says is love the Lord thy God and have no other gods before him. He's saying I want your priority. I want to be number one. And we know that after that moment on Mount Sinai with Moses, it was very quick in the story of Israel where that began to fall, began to fall apart. That sense of priority which was expected by God of his people didn't take place. But yet God would constantly call people back into that place. Guys, give me your priority. Give me your priority. Not because God is insecure. There's nothing deficient in the heart of God. It's simply that God knows that when we give him our full attention, it's the best for us in our experience. As we prioritise God, we win. As we give him the attention he deserves, we win. It's not because God wants to school us in behaviour, it's because he knows what's best for us. So that command to come close, to give him that sense of priority, and to have no other gods in front of him, is his way of saying, guys, if you give me your full attention, if you do the things that are necessary to make me the priority in your life, everything else you need is going to flow from that. Everything else you're going to need is going to flow from that. So I'm going to offer you... Now, six things. I wanted to give you seven things, because seven's a better biblical number than six. Like, we don't want, you know, man was created on the sixth day. So that's not too bad. But then you go into the book of Revelation, you've got 666. That seems quite intuitively bad. So I was looking for a seventh point, And I prayed, and I searched the scriptures, and I thought I'd really just be giving you something just to make up the numbers. So you've got six. And before you get too concerned that I'm going to take 60 or so minutes to say it because I have six points and you know that I'm a typically long preacher, I promise you to honour you giving me the priority of this moment by making my points brief. Okay, the first thing we need to do in order to make God our priority is that we need to spiritually feed from God. In order to make him the priority, we need to spiritually feed. There's a story goes, J. John tells it in fact, of a lady who bought a parrot. Gets the cage for the parrot, puts the parrot in the cage. She's thinking, oh, the parrot looks a little bit sad. I don't know what to do. So she goes to the vet. And she says to the vet, can I have your advice please on this parrot that I've just purchased? 
It seems a bit miserable in the cage and I wondered if you could give me some advice about keeping it. So the vet says to the lady, okay, well, I suggest that you maybe buy it a perch, something to kind of swing on. That may entertain the parrot, improve the parrot's mood, happier parrot. Okay, thinks it's a good idea. Off she goes to the pet shop, buys a perch, allows the parrot to go onto the perch, parrot swings, but the parrot still looks miserable. So the lady goes back to the vet, says to the vet, I bought the perch, but the parrot still seems melancholy. What am I going to do about my parrot? So the vet scratches their head and says, well, I think in my experience, parrots like to climb. So buy the parrot a nice little ladder. Ah, great, she says, that's it. Perch and a ladder, perch and a ladder. So she goes off to the pet shop. She buys a ladder, brings it back, puts it into the cage. Parrot walks up and down the ladder, expects there to be some kind of discernible sense that the parrot is a happier parrot, but no. Still a melancholy looking parrot. So she's thinking, oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? Why did I buy this jolly parrot? What have I gotten myself into? Right, I'm gonna go one, try more to the vet. Off she goes to the vet, the vet, ah, oh, you again, okay, come on in. Obviously making a good bit of money for the vet, they're not cheap. Vet says, sad parrot still? Yes, she said, okay, he says, I've got a great thing of advice. I read this up the other day after our last visit. Buy the parrot a mirror. Parrots do like a bit of company when you're not in the room, so get yourself a mirror, put it in the cage, the parrot will feel it's got a friend for life, and you haven't got to do anything else. You've still got one parrot, but it feels like it has company. Oh, she said, this is genius. This is why we pay you the big bucks. So off she goes, straight out of the vets, over to the pet shop, buys herself a tiny little mirror, sticks it in the cage, and she sees a sad parrot looking itself in the mirror. Exasperating, the woman leaves the parrot and goes to bed. Next morning, she wakes up and she sees the parrot lying on its back on the floor. It croaks a few little words and then it passes away. So the woman, she goes to the vet, knocks on the door, goes in. Vet says, oh, why, why so sad? She goes, my parrot died. Vet says, oh, golly. Okay, you said it was sad, but, but tell me what happened. So she said, I walked in and it croaked a few little words. It was on its back and then it died. And the vet said, what did it say? The parrot said, have you got any food? <laughs> the point is, if you don't feed things, they die. It doesn't matter what you give it to entertain it, or to amuse it, or to occupy its attention anyway, if you don't feed it, it will die. And sometimes our Christian lives can be like that. We're entertained by stuff. There's so much going on. I'm one of those churches where it never sleeps, 24-7 church. We're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing the other. I'm skydiving for Jesus on Tuesday. I'm feeding the poor on Wednesday. I'm leading an alcoholic to the Lord on Friday. I never stop. I'm always doing stuff. But if you don't feed yourself, you spiritually die. God says this about how we feed ourselves. Talking to the nation of Israel in context, Deuteronomy 8.3, God says, I, I caused a hunger and then I fed you with manna to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Through the practical example of God needing to feed his people in the desert place, God showed them that if they were to see the value of food in the physical, then they may understand the value of God's word in the spiritual. When the people of Israel were hungry in the desert, God didn't give them clowns and unicycles. They didn't need a mirror, they didn't need a perch, they didn't need a ladder, they needed food. And so one of the first things that we need to recognise, if we're going to keep God with a, 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 keeping with a real sense of genuine priority, we need to learn to feed off his word, to draw close to him, to feed off him, to spend time with him. The next thing we need to do is we need to let God lead. Let God lead. Now, it's a few years now since I've passed my driving test. But one thing I do remember from my lessons, which is the same today, is that cars that you learn to drive in can have dual controls. So Sean, who's just recently passed his driving test, he knows all too well about dual control vehicles. The idea being, of course, for those of you who's like me, it's been a few years since you've been in one, that there are times in a learner driver's experience when somebody else needs to take over the controls because you've chosen to do something that is potentially dangerous or against the law. And so the driving instructor, instructor seeing you about to race to a red light, may need to apply the brakes themselves. Now dual controls is therefore a symbol of immaturity. To try and have two people involved in the, the driving of the vehicle is an evidence that somebody is learning. The symbol of maturity is when those dual controls have gone, you've passed your test and the driver can drive. Now, if we were to try and apply that as a metaphor to the Christian experience, maybe there are times when we're trying to take the controls back from God that it is a sign of our immaturity. God's trying to drive the vehicle and we I don't like the way you're going. You're going a bit too fast here. We're trying to pump the brakes, slow down, maybe wrestle with him on the wheel saying, can we go in a different direction? One of the things we have to learn to keep, the God, keep God the priority is to allow him to lead the vehicle. God doesn't need backstreet, uh, backstreet, <laughs> backstreet boys. Maybe this comes from Freudian slip. Been tied up in my head with 90s boy bands. Backseat drivers. He doesn't need backseat drivers. He wants to involve us and we get to take control from time to time, but we can't always usurp God's, trying to usurp God's authority to take the vehicle where he wants it to go. There have been times in my life that I've looked back and I've said, God, why did you take me that way? And then a little while later, I've looked back again and said, ah, I see, why now? When I was 18, I had no concept of what God was ultimately calling me to, but I was applying for all kinds of different jobs. I wanted to be a firefighter, I wanted to be a marine, I wanted to be in the police, something that kind of said action to me, you know, something I could feel like I was some sort of 80s action hero, you know, so, so doing something, I was fighting crime, or fighting fires, or fighting wars, fighting was kind of in the theme. The only job I could get was a porter in a hospital. 
And for 18 months, all I did was talk to people who were sick on the way from their ward to the theatre. Or occasionally I would go and fetch something from one ward and bring it to another. One time, this nurse, she thought she was hilarious. She said, will you go up to the maternity wing and get me a box of fallopian tubes? Yeah. <laughs> I did it. I went up. I went up to the maternity wing. I said, I've come for a box of fallopian tubes. <laughs> the nurses went absolute hysterics. Yeah, another time, this is a true story, I've got loads of stories, but in the hospital days, one time, and um, it, 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 I had to go and get this blood plasma for this lady on a, a, a ward, and her, her, her name was Brenda Lusty. But when they got to the, the place where I delivered this, this blood plasma, they always read the surname out before the thing. So we've got blood plasma for Lusty Brenda. We've got blood plasma for Lusty Brenda. True story. I was in hysterics that day. Gosh, some of the things that craziness goes on in a hospital. But I learned a lesson. It's like, you know, being on a work site and they tell you to go and get the tartan paint and go for, the, go for a long stand in the storeroom and all that kind of stuff. Looking back now, though, I can see the value of that season that God took me through because learning to connect emotionally with people at a time of crisis was going to be important for my development, for what God could see and I couldn't. God says in heaven, I guess, at that time to me, Dave, you don't need to fight fires or fight crime because I'm not called you to be a firefighter or a crime fighter. I've called you to be a pastor. And climbing ladders in a fire is not going to do you much good when you're pastoring a church. But learning to connect with people at a time of emotional vulnerability, that will be good for you. So when you're applying for all these jobs, Dave, and you're feeling frustrated, this is how I imagine God saying to me that I didn't hear him say, just trust me to lead. Trust me to lead. Trust me to take you where you want to go. And that season was 18 months. And at the age of 18, it felt like a long, long time. Now, when am I going to get out of this season? When am I going to do something exciting? When can I move on to something that I want to do? Me, 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 I, I, I. But even when I didn't know I was being led, God was doing something ahead of time for what he knew I was ultimately going to need. And in order for God to be our priority, we have to learn to let him lead. The next thing we need to do is we need to learn to remain faithful to God. It sounds obvious, but it's harder to do in practice than it is to do in theory. Because we have this part of our, 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 our makeup, which the Bible calls the flesh this inclination, this proclivity in the human nature to want to do things which are opposite to what God wants you to do at times. So we need to learn and practice and rely on God's help, and I'll get on to this a bit more in my, in my final point, but that learn to remain faithful. Imagine Sean and Sarah. I'm going to pick on you now, Sean, because you're just... You're really kind of a laid-back guy. Sean and Sarah on their wedding day, taking their vows. Everybody's looking. And he's making his promises. Do you promise to love and honour and obey? Etc., etc. Although I don't think obey is in the male part, is it? Okay. 
It doesn't have to be there in the female part, actually. I don't usually do weddings with that in the language anymore, in, in, in the script. But then he says, oh, but can I just put an extra bit in there? I'm only going to do it two days a week. <laughs> Other five are going to do what I want. Sarah gets my faithfulness and my love twice a week. And that she's very lucky for. Now, you would say, Sarah, run, run, run down the aisle and do not marry that man because he does not have your best interests at heart. Because we recognize that for a relationship to work, there has to be a permanent decision of faithfulness, not a temporary one or a conditional one. I promise to, I will, I do, because there's a sense in which we know that faithfulness is a permanent thing, not a temporary thing. So when I walk with God, we have to work on that daily faithfulness, not Sunday faithfulness, not two-day-a-week faithfulness. Oh God, I'll give you my faithfulness when it suits me faithfulness, a constant sense of uh, 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 life being given in faithful service to God. The next thing we need to be able to do is to see things God's way. God says, this in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The context there is on financial provision. But Jesus there says something which was both counterintuitive, went against his intuition, went against his kind of instinctive sense of knowledge of what should be right and wrong, and also was countercultural, the cultural way of going about things. In order for you to get what you need from life, the message that we get from culture and the instinctive kind of sense that we feel is that we have to prioritise our own sense and what we want and go about things our way. Seek first my will. <laughs> Seek first my provision. If I don't put me first, then who else is going to and I'm going to end up lasting with nothing. That's how we tend to think. That's how culture has led us to think quite often. If you don't prioritise yourself, if you don't look after number one, then you will find yourself missing out on the important stuff because everybody else is out looking, for, looking after themselves and if you don't, you'll miss out and they'll tread on you to get where they want. And Jesus is saying there, actually, if you learn to prioritise the kingdom of God, how God would do things under his reign and rule, then you will find that as you give yourself in sense of priority to doing things God's way, I will make sure all the things you fear that you would miss out on will be provided for you. I'll make sure that you're provided for, looked after, taken care of. And I know in this room, because I've heard your stories, how many times when God has challenged his people, challenged you, challenged me, to financially live a certain way of sacrifice, and then at moments of crisis we've seen God come through. And God provide. And God show us, his people, that wherever you are in the world, whatever you're doing, as long as you're putting God first, you should expect God to come through for you. It doesn't mean there aren't moments of crisis and difficulty and head scratching and why didn't you do it this way. But overall, once we see our lives kind of over the long sort of curvature of time, we see God is faithful to his promises. He looks after us. We have seasons of plenty and seasons watch which seem lack, but we're still here and we're still going because God is still making a way. He's still offering his 
provision. So we have to see things God's way. We have to do things his way. And that shows a sense of priority. It goes against our instincts sometimes, but it gives him that sense of priority. Okay. The next thing we need to do is point five, is that we need to learn to love the things that God loves. Now, one area of marriage I've never been able to do this is my wife seems to love Coronation Street. <laughs> and I've tried my best to love what she loves, but every time I watch Coronation Street with her, I'm like, oh, Lord, this is too big a sacrifice to bear. Surely you never, in your declaration of loving people, expect if someone had to sit through half an hour of this. <laughs> now, she has to sit through my action movies, because that's right and proper. But there's just this sense in me, I think, oh dear, I can't bear with Coronation Street. But of course I don't say that to her, she's not here, she's with the kids, she won't listen to the podcast. I can put on a, a good face of pretending, you know. Oh, oh wow, oh, wow, I never expected them to do that. Oh, wow, what a great show. In order to make relationships work, we have to find a way of loving the things that they love too. Unless what they love is sinful, of course or harmful as well. Find that common ground to love the things that they love and not expect everybody to love life on your terms in your way. We have to find out, what, so, so what does God love? What's his love language? Well, one of the things I would say, other than what I've already said, is God loves people. And as we love people, we're showing a sense of priority to God because we're loving what he loves. Which is why he says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Those are the two commandments. Because if you want to show what it looks like to love God, then you'll love your neighbour. You can't love your neighbour, sorry, you can't not love your neighbour and say you love God because you don't love your neighbour. Jesus said this in Matthew 25, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or you needed clothing and we clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of the brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. God says, if you want to know how to prioritize me and love me and value what I value and love what I love, you will love people. God feels loved as we love one another. God feels loved as I love you. God feels loved as you love me. Our expressions of love to one another affect the heart of God. In such a way and to such a degree, Jesus says, you did it to me. When I show kindness to Joe, when I show kindness to Ray, when I show kindness to Joseph, and I do that with genuine love, they feel blessed and God says, that was such an accurate way to value me that I feel the benefit of that. God is affected by our love for one another. Final thing. If we're going to do this, though, we're going to need his strength. I mentioned a couple of points ago that sometimes God expects things 
of us which are counterintuitive, that go against our kind of instinctive understanding, countercultural, they go against the wisdom and the kind of way of going about things that we see culturally around us. And in order to kind of live going upstream rather than downstream, we need God's strength. Recently, myself and the boys, we went to centre parks. And there are all different kinds of pools within their kind of main swimming pool complex, depending on what you want. And one of the pools that they have is kind of like a whirlpool. And so when you get into the slipstream of this whirlpool, it carries you around. And everyone's having a real fun time because they're just lying on their back and they're whizzing around this thing. And I did it twice, that was enough for me. I was like, get me out, this is overrated. But if you were younger, they seemed to be able to stay in there for half an hour because they were just whizzing around and around and around. But one thing you couldn't do is you couldn't swim against the flow of the water. Maybe if you were an Olympic swimmer, you could probably battle your way around. But for most people, they had to go with the flow of the current. And that's where they all felt kind of the fun part of it was, was just allowing the current to take you. But Jesus says time and time again, you know, we can't live by the standards of this world. We can't love as the world loves. We can't live and give and do as the world would have you do. That's the current. That's the whirlpool. That's the flow of the water is going in a way in this world which goes against the way that God wants us to go. And so quite often as Christians, we feel like we're swimming upstream in order to do the things that God wants us to do. Culture says, value this, love this, honour this, do things this way. When God says something completely different, we think, oh God, you're telling me to do this, but everyone else is doing it a different way. And if I do it a different way, it's going to be really, really hard. God understands this, and one of the ways he's given us to deal with that pressure, to go against that flow, is the work of the Holy Spirit. He says this in Galatians 5.16, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and then you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. There are a few different ways I could interpret that. Walking is a kind of a partnership type of relationship. Walking is a metaphor used to describe people's journey with God in the Old Testament. People had to walk under the light of God's word. It says that Enoch was somebody who walked with God and then the Lord took him. It's a a way of describing a sense of closeness and fellowship on the journey. Proximity. If we went on a long walk and I was one mile ahead of you, we weren't really walking together. We were walking but not together. We couldn't say we walked on that same journey at the same time. So walking requires a sense of closeness, of fellowship, of intentionality to it in order to say that you're together on that journey. And I think that's something of what, the, what Paul is describing here. He says if you have that close fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if you're daily living with him at your side, talking to him, drawing from him, leaning into him, drawing strength from him, on that sense of shared journey together, if you do that, then you will find it possible to not do the things that your flesh is telling you you want to do. If you don't do that, you're going to find it incredibly hard to try and do the things that God 
wants you to do, but your flesh doesn't want you to do. Life in the Spirit is the strength that we need to not live life in the flesh. And Paul understood this. Paul was a great example of this. But for many of us, we find it very, very difficult. But if we apply those principles of spiritually feeding, allow him to lead and be faithful, those are ways that we can cultivate the closeness of that walk with the Holy Spirit, that we find it easier to draw of his strength. And as we draw of the strength of the Holy Spirit, we'll find it easier to make God our priority and keep him our priority. Because one thing we must do is we take this, if we take this walk with God seriously, is we must keep him number one and pay the electricity bill. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we say sorry, Lord, for times when we've gone through the motions of our walk with you, when it's been about keeping up appearances rather than a substantial fellowship with you. Yeah, Father, forgive us for times we've, we've been entertained in our Christian walk, but we've never fed off your presence. That we've done the things that seem to look like we're living, but really inside we're dying. Because we've taken our eyes off you. We've been unfaithful to you. And we thank you, God, you don't come at us through a word like this to hurt us or to punish us, but to simply remind us and invite us again that your hand is outstretched and you say to us again, look to me, draw close to me, focus on me, and I will do everything that you need to make this relationship work. Help us, Lord God, this week to make time for you in prayer and in study and in fellowship and to love one another in a way that blesses your heart that we can feel and know and sense and truly acknowledge that we do have you as a priority for our life. In Jesus' name, Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.